I am more concerned with a precious text that I've only been thinking about for a little while. It's been in there all the time, but it leaped out from the page and seized upon me. Some time ago, it's from 1 John 4, and there's a lot of other truth crammed into that portion, but I want to lift out of uh, verse 17, lift out of the context, uh, nine little words that fall apart into three sets of three words each. It's its own outline. You don't have to find an outline for this. As he is, so are we in this world. As he is, not as he was, between the eternity of yesterday that never had a beginning and the eternity of tomorrow that will never have an ending, stands Jesus Christ the same. There's only one thing that Jesus ever was. I'm he that liveth and was dead, but he's not dead now. After they laid that bleeding, bruised body away, I think Pilate and Herod and Caiaphas must have rubbed their hands and said, well, that takes care of him, but it didn't. He took care of himself. They rolled a big stone in front of that sepulcher, put a seal on it, and soldiers guarded it. But what are stones and seas and soldiers when a mighty angel comes down from heaven? And rolls that stone away, and I'm glad for what the Holy Spirit added there, and sat on it. <laughs> Got up on it and said, Now look who's in charge around here. Before Abraham was, my Lord said, not I was, I am. He's the eternal contemporary. John had seen him in the flesh, saw him resurrected, and saw him glorified. That's more than anybody else has seen. And when he saw him glorified, it knocked him out. And he fell. Jesus came over and said, cheer up. I'm here before there ever was anything to be afraid of. Now I'll be here after everything you're afraid of is gone. That ought to make a difference. And if we could see the Lord, we've not seen him in resurrected form. We've certainly not seen him in glorified form. But if he'd give us just one little glimpse some Sunday morning at church, we'd go out of that church as never before. And we wouldn't make a lot of the silly comments we make when we go out the door. Paul or John had been sitting on that old rock out there in the middle of the sea looking all directions. Water, water everywhere and all his contemporaries gone. And then Jesus shows up. Says, I want to give you a preview of what's coming. I want to give you a little rundown on what lies ahead. And it ends up in the southern New Jerusalem and there was no more sea. I think old John must have said, that's the best thing you've said yet, Lord. No more sea. What a moment for him. All the world's messiahs are dead, buried, Mohammed, Buddha, Confucius. We don't visit the grave of a dead messiah. They say there's a sepulcher. I've looked at it. So have many of you over there in Jerusalem. But that's not a certain thing, and he's not in it anyway. No mortal can with him compare among the sons of men. Fairer is he than all the fair who fill the heavenly train.
the infinitude of Jesus Christ never puts him in a past tense. He forever is as he is. Second, so are we. You mean us of all people? Like him, yes, not in degree, but in kind, if we're partakers of the divine nature. Doesn't say here, so should we be, so may we be, so shall we be, so are we. Right now, tonight, in this service, so are we in this world. In a Christian, Christ lives again to me to live as Christ. And his position up there and his condition down here ought to match. But some people say, I don't see many people that bear the slightest resemblance to Jesus. Well, they've been looking at too many church members. And so many of them don't look like him because they don't know anything about him. And some of them are babies in the faith. You know, there are two, ought to be two nurseries in every church, one for the sure enough babies, the other for the 40-year-old and over babies. <laughs> and that crowd's the one that causes most of the trouble. You call a new preacher, these babies that have been fed pablum all through the years say, I don't like him. Uh, he uh, doesn't come up to my expectations. He, uh, I wasn't looking for that. Uh, he didn't give me my pablum like I've been accustomed to. Uh, I miss my formula. <laughs> Boys grow, girls grow by food, rest, and exercise, and so does a Christian. Feed on the Word, rest in the Lord, exercise yourself unto godliness. And the Bible says, grow up. Paul said, Galatians 4.19, My little children, of whom I travail, travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you. As he is, so are we, if we'd only be what we are. We are the light of the world. He didn't say be the light of the world. He said you are. We are the soul of the earth. We ought to be what we are. You don't have to be queer and odd. Just be what you are in Christ Jesus. As he is, so are we in this world. So are we of all people and in this world of all places. Not in church, where it's not very difficult to look pious on Sunday morning. Not just in some favored spot in seclusion far from the madding crowd's ignoble strife. Not in some Shangri-La with some guru uh, droning out platitudes. But in this foul, polluted, perverted Sodom and Gomorrah, this old rat race, this old salt mines, every day of the week, so are we in this world. Good people are on their way, and God's people are headed for promotion in the world to come. His servants shall serve him there. But now we're in the boot camp. And you learn now what you'll need to know in the hereafter and be prepared. Heaven's not a glorious, glorified vacation. Who wants to sit around on a cloud plucking a harp all through eternity? I want to do something. If your life won't work here, it's not worth having. Jesus lived here for 30 odd years. And as he is, so are we in this world. 
And he said in John 17, you've been called out of the world, you're still in the world, you're not of the world, but I'm sending you back into the world to win others out of the world, and that's the only business you've got in the world. Now you get all that together and you'll be located, friend. <laughs> I said, let me walk in the fields. He said, no, live in the town. I said, there are no flowers there. He said, no flowers but a crown. I said, but the sky is dark, but the, and there's nothing but noise and din. He wept as he sent me back. There's more, he said. There's sin. I grew up in the woods. Some people think I would never have come out. I don't. And uh, I love, I took a long walk down to the lake and so on today. First chance to get away in a few days. And I grew up out there with a big old shepherd dog tramping the woods and beginning to steady birds. It's always been sort of a, a second interest for me, almost an aberration at times. But Jesus said, no, I've got a dirty, sinful, wicked old world that you've got out and have to live in motels and wander about. Every week change, I'm always making a readjustment every week of my life for 40 years. If you think that's a picnic, you know, try that. I've known rugged preachers to give it up after a couple of years and say, I've got to get back to my bed. Jesus had a hard time here. And he left us a legacy and a heritage. And Colossians uh, 1.24 says that we are to uh, have a share in his sufferings. We're to fill up what's behind. I don't know whether anybody understands that perfectly. I've studied it a long, long time. There's a share, not in his suffering for death, he suffered for us once for all, but there's a legacy of suffering that I may know the fellowship of his suffering. That's one thing Paul wanted to know. I want to know him and his. With most of us, it's me and mine. That's all I'm interested in. He said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his suffering, and conformity to his death. Do you want to know those three things? Uh, do you shrink from the idea of the fellowship of his sufferings? Oh, we stand on Sunday and I have chills almost when I see sometimes a sedate, well-fed, well-clothed, well-housed gathering of Americans singing to the old rugged cross, I'll ever be true, it's shame and reproach. Gladly bear. Most of them don't bear it any kind of way. I wonder. My dear wife's favorite song was that little quartet thing, This World is Not My Home. I'm only passing through. And she was a good pilgrim and a stranger, or as one of the new translations has it, an exile and an alien. And that's what you are. If you're a child of God, you don't belong here. And it's no friend to grace to help you on to God. This world is no more kindly disposed toward Jesus Christ tonight than it ever was. Never. We are still sheep among wolves. And he said, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. And in that one verse in John with the word world, five times in one verse, John 15, 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's what he said. If you want to find out what the attitude of this 
culture and this setup is toward Jesus Christ. Try being a real Christian for a week and you'll catch on. You'll find out. Well, what was he like in this world? I get so tired of some of these folks who have the idea that Jesus didn't do anything much down here but just quietly moved around not disturbing anybody. Why, they called him a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he said, I came not to send peace but a sword. I came to divide families. They were offended in him. He created a crisis everywhere he went. He offended the religionists that strain out a gnat and swallow a camel, he said. And he could use that kind of color for language too, which we need to recover to the glory of God. And then we have today the new gospel of prosperity. Be a Christian, you'll be a millionaire. Uh, it has not worked in my case. <laughs> I just can't stand this Horatio Alger school of positive thinking. And they say, well, we ought to march just like they did over there in Hebrews. You know how they overcame everything in the wide world who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong wax, valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women receiving their dead raised to life again. But right in the middle of that verse, right smack in the middle, we read about another crowd didn't get along so well. And others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And think of what they went through, beloved. Had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, of bonds and improvement, they were stoned. And had you ever thought about what a way to die this is? They were sown asunder. Were tempted, restrained with the sword, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, afflicted, tormented of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, both crowds, made it. But they don't all belong to crowd number one. And some of them go through fire of awful varieties down in this world. So I get a little weary of this. Uh, there was a young man from Kilpeakin whose nose was as red as a beacon but by saying it's white 30 times day and night, he cured it and died an archdeacon. I don't believe such mess as that. Do you realize that of the five principal characters in the Gospels, four of them died violent deaths? God didn't say to Paul, you've been faithful now, I'm going to put you on retirement, let you... Uh, retire to a villa down on the Riviera and write your memoirs. Say they're going to chop your head off in a few days. Now how does that fit into all this lovely business? We've got a lot of people today who want medals, but they don't want any scars. And Amy Carmichael put it right, no hidden scar on feet or side or hand. I hear thee sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail thy bright ascendant star. Yet as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me, but thine are whole. If he is, he has not followed far who has no wound, no scar. 
We sit at the table, one of the newer songs that's out. Everybody wants to sit at the table. Nobody wants to work in the field. And that's true of so much of our church membership. And the other day, in looking through the National Geographic, an old copy, I said, I saw a picture, and underneath it, these words, this is the Colosseum where Christians died for a faith they now take for granted. That's pretty good for National Geographic to come up with. The trouble is that what used to be fundamental has become incidental. We're majoring on the minor and minoring on the major, and we've moved all the way from experience to performance. And that's not the same thing. Sometimes I find myself in these dead, dull, dreary services saying, my soul, this can't be it. Jesus Christ died for more than this. You mean to tell me that this sort of thing we're sitting through this morning, is this the best we can do? Is this the best that can be done? No wonder that poor preacher got up one Sunday morning and looked at that order of service. You know how it is. Doxology, invocation number 42, and so on, on down the line. And then he said, Lord, give us something this morning that's not on this order of service. I don't blame him. I think about those missionaries in Korea. They preached, and then they said to the people, now you're dismissed, you can go home, but the crowd wouldn't leave. And some of them said, we can't. We can't sleep now. You've told us that God so loved us that if we trust Jesus, we'll live forever. Who can sleep after hearing that? God help us, we go to sleep listening to it here in America. Down in Hampton DuBose Academy, I've gone down there for years and years and years. Oh, oh, so long. And I remember back in the earlier days, it was a home for missionaries' children. Just that. And I saw missionaries tell the kids goodbye and go to be gone for several years. Now you jump on a plane, you're over there in no time anywhere. A lot of water's run under the bridge since then. I wonder whether today we have a devotion that is the equivalent of that. Now, some have it, but I, I wonder. Simeon held Jesus in his arms and said, This child shall be for a sign that shall be very popular. No, my soul, spoken against. And when the Jews came to hear Paul in Rome, they said, Well, all we know about your religion is that everywhere it's very popular, not on your life. Everywhere it is spoken against. Now, we're trying to make it popular. That's not the way it reads here. It meant something to be like Jesus in this world, then, and it still does if you really mean it. Uh, one of our songs has been changed lately, the Baptist hymnal. I don't know what's happened to them the other. They have new words for it now. They're good words, but they don't say what was said in John Peterson's first a version of it. So send I you to labor unrewarded, to serve unpaid, unsought, unknown, to bear rebuke, to suffer scorn and scoffing. So send I you to toil for me alone. You know anything about that? Do we know anything about that? So send I you to bind the bruised and broken, or wandering souls to weep, uh, to wait, to bear the burden of a world aweary, so send I you to suffer for my sake. What do you know about that? So send I you to loneliness and longing 
with heart a-hungering for the loved and known, forsaking home and kindred, friend and dear one, so send I you to know my love alone. So send I you to leave your life's ambition, to die to your dear dream self will resign, to labor long and love while men revile you. So send I you to lose your life in mine. And finally, so send I you to hearts made hard by hatred, to eyes made blind because they will not see, to spin though it be blood, to spin and spare not. So send I you the taste of Calvary. Uh, I asked uh, Cliff Barrow some time ago, I said, Cliff, why did they change all that? Those terrific words, they're classic words. And I asked Martha Brannan, who was singing for me in Virginia Beach in a meeting, their wonderful soloist from First Church Dallas. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that uh, the average Sunday morning congregation, that song is absolutely incomprehensible to them. They don't know what that's all about. They haven't the faintest idea of what it means. And what we call revival will come when we learn what we have long forgotten, that as he is, so are we in this world. We hear a lot about revival. Are we having revival? Can we have another revival? And if so, what kind of revival will it be? It will never be done by our American big way by not mobilizing but mobilizing all kinds of church members, saved and unsaved, into drives and campaigns and high-pressure publicity, compass and sea and land to make uh, one more proselyte when we already have too many members of the kind that most of them are. That's not what we need. Jesus is engaged now in what I call the assembling of the anyone's. After he had spoken to the churches in Asia, winds up with that message to Laodicea. If anyone, Campbell Morgan says he excommunicated the whole church and started over with one man. If one, anyone, it says, hear my voice and open the door, I will start over. The church upset the world one time, but they didn't do it by hiring a liaison man in Jerusalem and setting up a lobby in Rome. They did it with a few faithful folks on fire. Now, if you can get that 3F combination today, it might happen again. God begins with a few people. We, we Americans cannot think in terms of a few anything. It's got to be just statistically mind-boggling. God always started off with Gideon's bands and 7,000 who hadn't bowed to Baal and Malachi's little handful. The other day somebody asked Billy Graham in an interview, and this is terrific, if you were pastor of a large church in a principal city, what would be your plan of action? He said, I think one of the first things I would do would be get a small group of 8 or 10 or 12 men around me that would meet a few hours a week and pay the price. It would cost them something in time and effort. I would share with him everything I have over a period of a couple of years. Then I'd have 12 ministers among the laymen who in turn would take eight or 10 or 12 more and teach them. I know one or two churches doing that and it is revolutionizing the church. Christ set the pattern. Now listen, 
for a man who has preached to more people than any other human being has ever lived. He said this. He spent most of his time with 12 men. He didn't spend it with crowds. In fact, every time he had a great crowd, it seems to me that there weren't too many results. The great results came in his personal interviews and in the time he spent with his 12. You wouldn't expect Billy Graham to say that, would you? And yet he's very wise to say that because Jesus wants to gather around him a little nucleus uh, of dependables. You know about that dear lady who said to her pastor, I, I can't seem to know God well. Does God have favorites? He said, no, dear lady, but he does have intimates. God doesn't have any favorites, but even Jesus had Peter, James, and John. They were not just favorites, they were intimates. And that's all right. You, many of you have read In His Steps, that marvelous book that sold in the millions, of a preacher and a handful of his members who decided that they were going to start something in that church. And to every preacher here tonight, let me say this, this is one way to do it. But I wrote a book. It didn't, it didn't get around much. I don't know I'm going to get it out again, I think, when not, not peace but a sword. And I, I'm not a novelist, and I knew I wasn't, wasn't trying to be a novelist, but I did put it in story form because I thought maybe some people would read it who wouldn't read sermons. And I put it in the person of a young preacher who with a nucleus of his members decided, let's take Jesus Christ seriously here and see what happens. Man alive, I got him in more trouble in five chapters than I could get him out of in 25. <laughs> but it's worth it. It doesn't help to some pull out and start a new church down the street because they got mad about something. Because it'll happen over down, uh, down there again. That's no good. But you can't have a new church in the old church. Now some of the members may leave. Some of them may get mad. Some will get glad. Some will get sad. But anything's better than nothing. <laughs> get you preachers. I'm preaching more to preachers now than I ever have in my life. I'm just been in a group of them and headed next week for another pastor's conference in Arkansas and so on and on. It goes like that. And I love preachers because if you can help one preacher, you've reached several thousand people through that one man. I tell them, start gathering a little kindling wood and start a new fire. I grew up in the country. I had to chop a lot of wood and bring it in, make the fires. Dad woke me up in the morning, seemed like 2 o'clock. was a little later. Get up and make a fire. And uh, I learned if I waited a second call, that was unfortunate. And if I waited three times, it was a calamity. <laughs> so I went into the kitchen. No slippers on my feet at all, just barefoot. And on that old cold hearthstone, I nearly froze fast on the thing before I could get a fire built. I had my backlog there, and I had my middle-sized wood, and then I had my kindling wood, and I would hope that there would be some coals under the ashes still there from the night before. Put my kindling on the coals and blew and blew till it was blue, and the flame came up, and I put on my middle-sized wood and I had a fire. Now, you try to wake up that backlog of your unconverted and uninterested members, you'll never have a fire. Never. Start with the kindling wood. 
start with the best people in the church. You say they don't need it. No, yes, uh, we all need it. And besides, that's the hope as far as people are concerned. Gather your kindlingwood. Some preachers have taken this seriously and seen wonderful things. But, of course, there'll be something. Oh, you're trying to have a bunch of super saints here in the church go around looking down their nose. I don't mean that kind at all. That's Phariseeism. And that's worse even than what I'm talking about here. But gather around you a few who will take Jesus seriously and remember that that's what we're here for, to be like him in this world. And what will happen will be revival. What is revival? Revival means conviction of sin to begin with and repentance. You never have a revival if it doesn't start with repentance. And in order to have conviction, somebody's got to preach about sin. Sin as a nature and sin as a practice, both. And uh, uh, Finney had a sermon on how to preach so as to convert nobody. He said, preach on sin, but don't name any of the sins of the congregation. You never have a revival doing that. You've got to name something. Jesus named something when he talked to the woman at Jacob's well. He talked about the water of life and where's the best place to worship, and that's a great subject. But she did not get under conviction. He said, go call your husband. She'd had too many of them already. And she went home. She said, come see a man that told me not about the water of life, not about where's the best place to worship. All things that ever I did is not this the Christ. When you face Jesus Christ, you will think about what you're doing. And some of it you oughtn't to be doing. And that brings conviction. And it means not only conviction, but confession and forsaking, as I've said here already. It's not enough to confess your sins. You must give them up. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsake them shall have mercy. It means separation from the world. It means being filled with the Holy Spirit. It means victorious Christian living. And it means winning the lost. But all of that comes from repentance and getting right and starting with the kindling wood in the church. But it'll work. It begins when you hear his voice and open the door and say, Come in, Lord, and make him not the guest, but the host. Put him at the head of the table. Don't put him in the back room till Sunday and then bring him out for church. Let him run the place. Oh, Jesus, thou art standing outside the fast-closed door, in lowly patience waiting to cross the threshold door. Shame on us, Christian brothers, his name and sign who bear. Oh, shame, thrice shame upon us to keep him standing there. And so I dare ask you, friends, and I know you're, you're good people and you're here in a great and wonderful place, but is your condition in line with your position? How far short do you come of being as he is in this world? Well, you say nobody's perfect. Well, now we all know that, but uh, uh, the standard is not imperfection. You'd think it was. I wish I could meet some people that are longing for perfection the way they're satisfied with imperfection. Nobody's faultless, but you can be blameless. The Bible says be blameless. When a little child writes a letter the best way it could, it's not faultless, but it's blameless. And you can do that. God help us to be what we are, salt of the earth, the light of the world. I got a letter from Mike the other day. You don't know who Mike is. Mike, when I saw him at Sandy Cove Bible Conference uh, some months ago, 
uh, the unlikeliest guy, weighs over 300 pounds, heavy beard, and uh, he liked my preaching, and he wanted to get with me and walk with me. Now, I didn't know who he was, and I didn't know who is this son. But I began to find out. He had been about the worst critter that you ever heard of in this world. You name it, he'd done it. All the awful things. Drugs is just, just one item. You name it. And then God had saved him. And I never saw such a transformation. I, I wondered when he told me whether his wife had left him, his life was a wreck. And then he came to the Lord and got saved. Now he's running a rescue mission in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. And I never saw such enthusiasm for Jesus Christ. And the folks around there knew, some of them knew him. They asked him to lead in prayer. And when he prayed, I said, he's done that before. And the, he, he's only had a few months with the Bible, and he's already reeling it off. And I don't mean mechanically. Now you talk about somebody, you know something about being like him in this world, because he's a different sort of a person. And he wrote me a wonderful letter. Uh, he, and uh, he got to walking around there with him, and I rather welcomed it because they always have a great crowd getting into dinner there. And I put him in front of me, 300 pounds of it. Man, is like the Red Sea opening before Moses. I said, well, this is all before and after taking going around again. But he loved it. And he wrote me this wonderful letter. He said, they've licensed me last week to be a preacher. And he said, I'm so happy. And he said, how do you like what's at the bottom of my stationery? And guess what was down at the bottom of the stationery? All his stationery's got it. As he is, so are we in this world. He'd heard me preach it, and it had got him. Oh, beloved, he breaks the power of cancer, sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood avails for everyone, for Mike as well as me, I like to put it down. We're the custodians of a wonderful charge in this world. I'll leave it with you. Be sure that you have checked and that you do check right away. How far away am I from being as he is in this world? Lord Jesus, thou art here tonight. You said where two or three gather, you're there. We can't see you with the eyes we have, but if we had our resurrection eyes, we could, and you appeared, but you're here. If you're not here, we might as well be at home. We've got no business here. But all is vain unless the Spirit of the Holy One come down. Oh, Lord, help us remember whose we are and whom we serve. And that not as he was, thank God, but as you are. So are we, Lord, us, poor mortals that we are, yes. And in this world is Sodom and Gomorrah, Right, because that gives us a chance to prove what we say we believe. We trust thee to apply this message to every heart and help us remember that if we hear it and don't do it, we deceive ourselves, James tells us. Don't let anybody go out of here tonight self-deceived, having heard and doing not. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.